Consummate athletes seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah, we had our final big mountain bike club event this weekend. Uh, it was distance, so not, I guess, that big, but it was fun. A bunch of single track and newer sort of private land use that we just had use for the day. So really exciting for that. And yourself, you were uh, out doing a variety of sports. Yeah, I feel like I had a very consummate athlete weekend. A good friend of mine and I bike packed about 180K, so like 110 miles for, for the American listeners, um, out to uh, this little part of the peninsula that we live on or that we live near called Tobermory. And then the next day, we so we carried, we, we hotel camp, bike packed. So this is where you, you know, have hotels booked and you're, you're not carrying your tent or sleeping bag or food or anything. Um, but we wanted to do that because we were carrying run packs with us because then the next day we ran 40 K along the Bruce trail and, oh my gosh, Ontario is gorgeous. I feel like we, we were actually saying as we were running that this summer has given us kind of a newfound appreciation for the area that we live in. Uh, we've gotten to kind of see a lot more things that we, we really hadn't seen before and, you know, kind of exploring new places and. Yeah, realizing I was like, oh my gosh, the water here looks like it does in Costa Rica. And, you know, Lake Huron looks kind of like Virginia Beach. And that's sort of two of my favorite places. So it was cool to see that there were, you know, spots here that I could kind of go to when I when I miss those places. Yes. Uh, then we, we rode back the next day, uh, another hundred miler. So two centuries and a trail marathon. And yeah, really, really good time. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like a good mix of adventure and friends and and girls running, which is the topic of today's podcast. Oh, good segue. Uh, it's actually the topic of a book as well. Yes. Today we have Elizabeth Carey, who is the co-author of the new book, Girls Running, uh, along with runner and now coach Melody Fairchild. Uh, Elizabeth is also a coach uh, in addition to being an author. So it's a really, really fun conversation sort of talking about not just girls in sport, although, you know, a lot of that, obviously, but also just kind of like getting into running and sort of, you know, some of the, the trials and tribulations that anyone would really face getting getting going. Yeah, I think so. I came across it. I thought it was a, a book that was sort of like in line with your Shred Girls, you know, Girls on Bikes, but like sort of a, a fictional book. But it actually is a, a nonfiction book more about getting into running and, and some of the issues we get into as we get more serious with sport, right? And and especially for that a lot of younger females face as far as aesthetics and, and body weight and making weight and, you know, training too much or too little or, or different things. Like yeah. That. And it's always funny, though, because, you know, we're talking about this in the context of like younger girls getting into running. But I think we see the same with adult, like men and women getting into pretty much any endurance sport. Like, you know, it might not be as extreme and, you know, you might not have quite as much of a of an issue. But I, I would say like there is still very clearly. 100%. Yeah, you still see I just had a conversation this morning just like, yeah, you, you got to eat if you're going to ride for a long time. Like there's no you're, you're not cutting weight. Right. And it, this is we all make this sort of thing it's, it sort of makes some sort of logical sense and then it, it doesn't in the long term right so so it's one of those great things though it's where it's if you can change thinking of of younger people particularly girls when they're first getting into sport you know at that like 
pu- like puberty hitting age 12, 13, uh, you know, if you can kind of flip the switch and flip the script and make them realize the importance of, you know, fueling the work that they're doing and all of that kind of stuff and the healthy living versus just like great performance and the balance between the two, I think you're, you're setting up for, for a better like, well, and as you say, in sport. trying to flip the conversation to not even that, like that stuff's important to have sort of your basics, but also to say that like running can be fun or social or, you know, adventurous or these other things, right? Like it's not... It's not just about food and body weight, right? And I think that's something we we miss a lot as adults too. And I feel like for, for me and, and for you, I feel like we both had kind of moments this weekend in particular where we sort of realized that, you know, there there's more to, to running and biking than wattage and numbers and everything. And it's, it's good to be reminded of that sometimes. Like sometimes you need to get out of the like singular training thing and, and go out on fun adventures with friends to sort of rekindle that. that right. Spark of right. Enjoyment. No, I often say that that's, I don't know. It wouldn't, I wouldn't have stayed in. Right. If it wasn't for that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's get into this episode with Elizabeth Carey. Before we dive into this episode, I just wanted to take a quick second to tell you all about Watt Bike, the smart bike that might be able to fuel your trainer rides this season. It is Zwift certified. You can use it on all different kinds of leading training and racing apps. And what's super cool about Watt Bike, other than the fact that you don't need to start setting up your bike on a trainer, is that it has real ride feel technology. So it's actually going to feel like you're out on the road when you are safe inside during the winter or fall or as the weather weather gets kind of crappy. Uh, It has precise and reliable data. You know you're actually going to get to see what your power numbers are. No no pretending that your power numbers are higher than they are or feeling bad because they seem lower than normal. And of course, you get free access to the Watt Bike Hub, which is a training application where you can find climbs, endurance, and sprint workouts. And of course, there's fun tests to make sure that you're continually improving. Uh, to find out more about Wattbike, you can head over to wattbike.com slash US. That's W-A-T-T-Bike.com slash US. Or you can just head over to the show notes at consummateathlete.com for the link right there. Thanks so much and enjoy the episode. Elizabeth, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, before we dig into talking all about uh, getting more girls into running and the work that you've been doing there with your new book, um, we're, we're really curious about how you got into running. So what what's your athletic background look like? Well, it's kind of funny because I grew up in a town where most people started playing soccer, as they call it here, when they were about two or three, and I was not one of those people. <laughs> so I got my start in running later, quote unquote, um, for an endurance athlete. I didn't start till I was a freshman in high school. And the only reason I went out for the track team was because a friend of mine and I were both kind of behind the eight ball when it came to sports, especially team sports. And so we decided we were just going to try some new things together. And so we signed up together for volleyball, which we played in the fall. We went out for swim team and then we went out for track and that one stuck. It was such an amazing team environment and I could barely run 20 minutes without stopping when I first started. (laughs) My face turned really red and blotchy and I thought I might die, Um, but I fell in love very, very quickly. And the rest is history. I've been running ever since as long as I've been healthy. 
Oh my gosh, that's such a that's such a cool thing that you and your friend decided to do that. Had had you guys been friends for like a really long time before that? And what had you always just been like, oh, I'm going to dare you to do something or we're going to decide we need to do this together? You know, that's a good question. We met in middle school and so we'd only known each other for a couple of years. Um, but I think we both felt because we weren't inherently or traditionally athletic in the sense of playing premier soccer and taking ski bus with our families. We never did that. And our and it's not that our parents didn't enjoy outdoor activities. It's not that we didn't, you know, we weren't healthy with our family going out for walks or hikes or, you know, fishing or biking or whatever. It was more that we just didn't have that experience. And, and so I think we felt stronger together. Um, and we knew that, you know, it's, cause it's scary to try a new sport. Like I didn't know the rules of volleyball and, you know, Google wasn't a thing then if I, if I'm remembering accurately, you know? So I think my dad got like a book out of the library, like volleyball for dummies, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> running was, you know, more simple. Um, but we didn't know that going into it. And I think when you might have some insecurity or you don't really know how to navigate those environments, it's so nice to have a buddy. And we definitely had that type of friendship and we continue to have that type of friendship where we, we do adventurous things together. So that's great. Oh, I love that. And that was like, that was so much uh, in when I was working on shred girls, uh, as I was talking to young female cyclists, I was asking what kept them in cycling. Because uh, most girls drop out between like ages of like nine to eleven, uh, and every girl that stayed in, it was because they had a friend that was doing it. Their friends were were riding with them, and that's what kept them in. So I really wanted to kind of try to bring that like friendship element to to more girls because um, I think that's that's just so key for for keeping young girls in sport. Definitely. Um, so. After that freshman year experience, did you stay on track like all four years? What what did your like lifelong pursuit of running look like after that? Yeah, so after track, um, the coach, who was also the coach of the cross country team, convinced me that I might actually be able to run further than two miles in a race, and we went out for cross country. Um, and so I stayed on the swim team, but for the rest of high school, I did cross country and swim team and track. And then I was recruited to run collegiately. Um, and that just opened up a whole new world to me that I had never imagined before. I was a very bookish child, very nerdy. I like to read and write, <laughs> play in the mud. Um, I'm an only child, so I kind of had to learn how to entertain myself and have conversations with adults. Um, so to me, being someone who is super protected and not really like I was in my own little world the the even the invitation to run at these colleges all across the U.S. blew my mind and I realized that wow maybe this is something that could take me somewhere um, so I ended up going to Columbia University in New York City which is a, an Ivy League school but it's also a division one sports um, institution which means that it just ups the stakes, and I was attracted to that challenge, both academically and athletically, and so I ended up running there, um, quote-unquote running, because I had a pretty garbage career there with lots of injuries and, and suffered uh, some of the more typical things that I think are far, far too common for female college athletes, um, but I did cross-country and indoor and outdoor track, and after that, I 
stayed with running. I don't know how. I loved it so much that I was willing to stay with it, even though it had thrown all these obstacles at me. And so I trained post-collegiately on the track and on the roads and got into marathoning. And, and that led me down the path to ultra marathoning and trail running. Um, and so it's really evolved. But I guess you would call me a lifelong runner for sure. Yeah, and I like a few things here as you guys are talking away about this. You know, you talked about fun friends, you know, which is sort of that when we're talking about the fundamentals of sports and stuff that often is waxed poetically about. But I think we miss that a lot of times when we actually develop kids programming, right? It very quickly becomes winning and travel teams and rep hockey and all this. Um, And then the lifelong, like way too many people like yourself that have all this experience. I I think about it as even just like dollars and hours of coaching put into you. You know, you come out of the collegiate system, whatever, however well you do, whatever level of you know performance, and then we lose you because you're so disenfranchised with running, right? And then all the experience you have doesn't get passed on, right? Like you don't become 20 little girls or thousands maybe with your book, right? Um, so I love your story. So I guess today our, our challenge then is to talk a bit more about, you know, what is what is making you know little girls who become women become disenfranchised or not c- continue as long as you do um or stop them from even either starting, starting. or like quitting almost immediately there's all these all these things so we're hoping yeah. to get through a bunch of these today so uh i just want to mention again the name your your book is girls running all you need to strive thrive and run your best and you wrote this with uh melody fairchild who also had she was fair, I, I take it her career in, in collegiate went better slightly better <laughs> If we're, if we're comparing. So can you tell us a bit about her and then sort of how you guys came together to write this book? Yeah, she was one of the fastest U.S. girls high school runners. She was the first girl to break 10 minutes for the two mile. And she was just a phenomenal athlete. And she won um, Foot Locker back-to-back, which is the National Cross-Country Championships. Um, she took bronze in the Junior World Cross-Country Championships. So she was one of, like, a star female athlete in high school. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure that gets put on girls, especially when you show that early promise, that early success. And so she faced a lot of... of um, fears and and pressure and talk around a lot of that. And so she was, of course, recruited by everyone in the country, and she ended up going to University of Oregon. But when she got there, not only did some life factors converge, but she really, that the weight of all of that really caught up with her and the weight of training really hard. And, um, and so, you know, there was a time for her where she had a dip and she ended up stepping away um, from running for a year and taking a break. And again, she was going through some life things, but people started, I would say, wondering if she was going to be that next star that just disappeared. But there's something very special about Melody. And she went back to Colorado and, and found her heart. She actually got her period in that year off and really started that process of becoming a woman and a full human, not just a runner. And of course, Melody's never just been a runner, but when you have so much success, that's what people see you as. That's how you identify. Um, And so she came back and she won an NCAA title and the 3000 in the indoors, and then went on to have a professional career, qualified for the Olympic trials and multiple long distance events, and then has also found success as a master's athlete. Um, on the trails and, and mountain running and on 
And so she's been involved in the sport. She's one of those people that you're, you know, talking about. She could have just stepped aside, but her love for it and her curiosity and her sense of playfulness um, and also like wanting some redemption brought her back. And so she's been in the sport forever. She now coaches. She has a girls running camp. And I met her at a running camp when I was in high school, but I worked there in college. And so you have a chance to stand around the campfire and, and, and just talk and share stories. And we all knew that Melody had faced these things. But the fact that I, in the early 2000s, had faced the same things, the fact that campers were facing very similar pressures, and there were other women there from all different generations of runners that were still fighting these same battles. And they had long-lasting impacts for not only health and performance, but just overall well-being. And we decided that that thing needed to change. And um, so anyway, that's a long-winded answer to say that Melody is someone special. She's been talking about these issues for a long time. But we found this collective strength and also urgency right now um, to kind of strike. It, it was time to change things for sure. Right. So you guys wrote this book then that sort of deals with a lot of these topics. And I love this this almost vision or, or metaphor of the campfire and uh, standing around and telling stories that have been going on, as you say, for too long. I wonder, you know, you, you talk a bit about taboos, and, and I think this is the same topics around the campfire. Like, can you en enlighten us or share just like what, what, what are those campfire topics that we're not, you know, that we're not doing great on? Yeah, so I would say it, for me, it kind of comes back to about three main buckets of information. The first is talking about weight and appearance. And so we know that that's a big factor in endurance sports. Um, and especially when coaches or adults are judging young athletes' bodies or professional athletes' bodies, there is a lot of, of uh, archaic, misguided, unhelpful language and guidance that is given around weight and, and appearance. And that's the first huge bucket. And then the second, I would say, is puberty. So especially, you know, um, you were mentioning how hard it is to retain girls in sports around the age of 9, 11, 13. So, you know, by age 14, I think the Women's Sports Foundation says that girls are dropping out of sports by 14 at two times the rate of boys. Yeah. And one, yet one of those reasons is, is puberty and people's misconceptions around puberty and again, what your body should be doing during puberty, whether it's a good thing for an athlete um, or something to be feared and shunned. And then the third big bucket of taboos, I would say, is, is periods and the menstrual cycle. And that's something that um, anyone who menstruates has, you know, either dealt with some stigma or shame. It's not a topic that a lot of coaches, and I do think this is changing, but that a lot of coaches historically talk to their athletes about. Um and so those three buckets, you would talk a lot about, you know, around the campfire, body shaming, public weigh-ins, eating disorders, fearing and not trusting our own bodies, or being told that what we knew intrinsically or intuitively about our bodies was wrong, um, and, and just existing in a system that, that didn't seem to have our best interests in mind, both from a performance and health lens. 
Yeah, for sure. And I'll say when I was uh, helping coach cross country, I would say it's not that even that the coaches necessarily were trying to like do this. It was just so like these like myths about like, oh, you know, no, no candy during the season and like, oh, yep, nope, can't eat that. Can't do that. Like it was it was a lot of stuff where I was just like, Oh, these are, this is what we're telling these like 14 year old girls that that's probably not, not a good thing to be getting into their brains. Cause if I'm stressing about it, imagine how a 14 year old who hasn't quite figured that stuff out is thinking about it. Totally. And that's such a crucial time where if they're new to the sport or their bodies are changing, they're in a very big transitional phase and they're being bombarded by these messages. And we know that outside of sport, those messages are reinforced by diet culture in an unhealthy way. So anybody's going to have to deal with this. But at that time, it's so those those words get like stuck in your brain, right? Like I could probably write a book of the trash diet advice that <laughs> I've heard coaches or, you know, um, or just in general, diet culture spout off. And then not it's not helpful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd say like the scary thing is a lot of the time it's so unintentional and so just like casually tossed out, but then it sticks in your brain. Like uh, Peter's mom actually mentioned she had a gym teacher back in school that told the girls like to stop drinking water if they wanted to like drop weight. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, and my mom said it stuck with her for years that like, and cause she looked up to this woman who was just like, you know, the gym teacher and she was like fit and yeah, it was just like, stay away from the water. <laughs> oh my God. That has to top the list in the worst things that I've heard. Well, I don't, what would that be? That would be like, I don't want to date my mother, but like 50s, 60s? 60s, yeah, I guess. 60s. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, they were new. I mean, I guess. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because, you know, like oh. that's an easily like, we can like laugh that one off, but I mean, there there's still like wrestlers who are taking that to heart to make weight for their, their match next week. So it's still right. around. So a lot of this is intermingled when we talk about these buckets, but I wonder with the period, the what caught me there, and I just want to clarify, but I think it might be illustrative of this, this idea of, of periods and, and just what is going on there a bit. Uh, with Melody, you said she, she left... Uh, running for a while, went back to Colorado and got her period. Now that wasn't like an 11 year old getting their first period. This was like, how old would she have been? And like, tell us more just about, about, about what that means, I guess. Yeah. So she was 19. Um, and so she had yet to get her period up to that point. And we now know, and Melody and I have, you know, done a lot of research about this and, 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 in, at working at her camps, you know, obviously she's learned a lot more, but that is something that's a red flag. You know, technically they say like one of the less, I'm not a doctor and neither is Melody, but you know, if you have yet to get your period by age 16, you should see um, a doctor about it because there's lots of different things that could be happening. And, you know, Melody didn't see it. Like I don't, she didn't have a diagnosis or anything, but that is something that in running is very common to either, and it doesn't mean it's it's healthy, but it's common for people to either lose their period, have a delayed period, um, and and think of that either as a badge of honor or as something that's a sign that you're training well or hard. 
that you're a good <laughs> runner. And we still hear that from middle and high school girls. And so for Melody, a big piece of that, like your first period is a huge part of puberty. Um, your first period should come about one to three years after you start puberty, right? So if it hasn't, you know, okay, maybe something's going on. But it's a sign. It's a healthy sign of your body functioning. And um, there's so much culturally in running around that. We are taught as athletes, and Melody was encouraged to sort of fear puberty and fear her period because we hear these stories about older girls, you know, getting their period and going through puberty and then slowing down. Or we hear these stories about um, um, losing change of your body changing and how that can affect your running, maybe make you slow down. And so if you're a good runner, quote unquote, and you have these pressures and the period or puberty is out there as this something that you should fear, um, not only are you not going to be talking about it with your coach, you're not going to be talking about it with your parents, you're going to have so much shame and guilt around it and fear as opposed to embracing it as what it is, a rite of passage, something natural that bodies go through. And and that's like when Melody got her period. So she she left Oregon. She took a break. Um, and she, she took a break from running. She did some mountain biking and worked at a camp in the mountains and and ate whatever she wanted, made some friends. She was going through a very hard time with her family because her mother had passed away the year prior. And, you know, so she just was was processing a lot of that. But when her period came, she said, like, of course, her body changed. But she felt strong. And she took pride in this new powerful self that she had. Um, but it was important for her to be able to go through that process away from all those those fears and pressures um, and to find her own strength and in her new and changing body, which she was able to do. Um, but I think especially during that time period that was like the 90s, there wasn't necessarily, there, there's no built-in support for that, right? You kind of go it alone. And now, again, I do think it's changing, but Melody has said that if, if her coach or other people around her explained to her that puberty wasn't a death knell for her running, and it might in fact help her, then she wouldn't have feared it so much. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot in there, but, uh, it's, it's a hopeful story and it's, it's amazing to see the courage that she exhibited to kind of go that independent route, which a lot of people like myself wouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. No, I, I love that. And it's, it's cool that it's actually like kind of shared and you can sort of see like, oh no, this is actually a good thing and looking at it in a really positive light. Uh, and I think you're right. I think it is changing. Um, now, to that end, though, I feel like we've, we've kind of hit on a lot of like the, the negatives of, uh, of high school and middle school running. But can we kind of like actually back up and maybe just talk about a couple of the positives of getting young women into running? Because I love that we can like now guide them into like a healthier way to run. But like, let's talk about why they should run. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think my number one selling point for running is that it can be this amazing opportunity for your whole life. And for me personally, and I know Melody as well, it has introduced me to the most amazing people, shown me the most amazing places, and 
it was the first thing that really gave me complete confidence in myself. And so in the book, we talk about your running journey and the approach that we recommend girls take to trying out running is one of curiosity and thinking of your running as an experiment of one. And it's something that can boost your health, boost your mood, introduce you to people, and maybe you'll f find success. Maybe it's something that you want to take to the highest possible levels. You can do that, but it's so much more. And it's a tool. It's, it doesn't just have to be about track or cross country. It can be about this lifelong relationship that you have. It's a practice. And so I think on when we're talking about your running journey, for so many of us, our, our, our sport or especially running has turned into something that's not just about like individual selfish pursuits. It's about your community and how you show up in that community. And, um, and that's why it's so powerful. Of course, we love to set PRs. We love to win. We love to compete. Um, but that is not the be all end all. You are not defined by your results. You are not defined by your PR as much as some people might say that you are, we disagree with that. Right, mm -hmm. right. I think that's such a great message, right? Again, the goal, I think, you know, we, again, we wax poetic about these, like, you know, grassroots programs, these intro to running programs, these kids, you know, whatever, kids running, kids cycling programs. But uh, a lot of the times it's like, I think we're missing this idea of just like going out and having fun. And I, I, I've been really harping on this adventure and exploration because I feel like we've lost that. We just are showing up and, you know, running or, you know, around a track even, right? Like track running's good. It's, it's, it teaches you a lot. It's, you get fast. But like, I think it's missing out on some of the opportunity to share like the joy of running, even marathon running on a road, like exploring your city, you know, getting like, wow, you can run 10K through your city, let alone in the mountains, right? Or trails or cross country similar, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you, like, would you say that that exploration piece is that something like, is that, is that fitting in this framework? I love your framework of exploring and your running journey. Like, is that, is that a part of it? Is this like send, sending girls out <laughs> into the, in the great beyond or like, what are we doing? Yeah, I think so. And I think like at Melody's camp, she usually has a day or two where we do something where you're going to be pushing into the unknown. It might be uncomfortable. It might be a little bit more than you ever thought you could achieve. Um, but we we tr we try to have those days, of course, giving the girls all the support that they need. Um, but I think that the younger generation of runners might not have as many chances to explore that freedom, explore that. And I think Melody talks a lot about stepping into the unknown and that's where you face obstacles. That's where you face fear, but that's also where you get to grow. And without that, you don't really, you know, that, that is really the piece that gives you, um, strength and confidence and development. And there's so much about it. I mean, it should be fun. We are exploring, we are playing and maybe it's type two fun and you just are happy when you're done, but you're still, um, you're still growing and progressing. And in that way, we look at running as a practice. Um, and, and it's about the progress. Um, but yeah, if you, if you're not doing something that makes you a little bit nervous or a little bit scared, you might not, find the growth that you otherwise, you know, you otherwise would. 
Yeah, it's, it reminds me, we did a camp yeah. uh, for girls uh, in Tucson, Arizona um, with a friend of ours, Ellen Noble, who's like a professional uh, cyclocross racer. And so we had, what was it? Would it be 15? 15, yeah. 15 girls, say 14 to 18, I guess, or maybe a bit older than that for a couple. And so the big camp day, like we did some rides that were just like, you know, three hours, but like pretty solid. But then we also had like this big challenge day where we'd ride up Mount Lemon, which is just, it's massive. It's like most people are, you know, two hours plus to get up and it's like snowing at the top, even though it's a desert at the bottom. And <laughs> so, yeah, so they like, they had to put on like all these clothes at the top and some of them were so drilled and it was the biggest like ride of their life and they all got up and down. Right. And it's just like such an awesome thing to see it. Right. And it just like changes their perspective on what they can do, but then what cycling can do and, you know, their take, you know, getting together and riding with different girls on the way up and like banding together to like motivate each other. And yeah, it's like, I'm crying in the car, just like watching all these moments. He really was. Honestly, of anyone at the camp, he cried the most. It was embarrassing for all of us really uh but it was very sweet um but it sounds like i i mean it seems like you're pretty similar as far as like thinking that the camps and that kind of stuff is really just like probably honestly the best thing that i could say like would get girls excited about these sports because i think as a very reluctant athlete like i wouldn't i didn't run a mile till i was 20 so i came from like the school of like absolutely not i won't do it you can't make me do it um, I actually was kind of wondering if you can maybe speak to how parents can maybe encourage their girls to try getting into running. Um, cause I think there's a lot of people, myself included, who would have been really happy doing it, but just, you know, were kind of intimidated by it or just didn't think it was for them. Yeah. So I think like Melody in Boulder has a youth running club and I think it starts at age seven or eight. And the emphasis is on what we're talking about, exploration and play. But it's also in Boulder. And we know that parents bring their own set of expectations or pressures or fears to the equation. And so as a parent, I think the most important thing that Melody and I talk about a lot is is taking off your own ego hat and realizing that this is your child's journey and they might get something out of it that is different than you expect, but you have to let them have that experience. And, you know, I think like when I was living in Denver, Colorado, a couple years ago, um, or a few years ago now, um, we'd see lots of like kids out racing and the parents would be on the bike, you know, yelling at yelling splits. And Perhaps that child is extremely driven and there are a lot of really driven young children that are self-motivated to do that. But I think as adults in the room, we need to step back and think about how they, how we're pressuring them and whether we're creating a fun environment. What are we teaching them? (laughs) What is the education? What is the invitation instead of what is the mandate? So if you're, you know, like if you're as a parent, you run, but your kid rides your a bike next to you while you run. How can you think about experiences like that where you can introduce them to the sport without forcing it on them? So whether that's a youth running club like Melody's, which is so much fun. I've been to some practices. It's a blast. Um, you know, with the uh, emphasis on positive coaching and, and a positive experience and athleticism, not just straight up running miles and hammering intervals. Um, you know, is it a club? Is it um, going for a hike and running the downhill, 
Is it, um, you know, doing a little relay race in your neighborhood? Whatever that looks like, you're at least introducing, planting the seed, giving the experience, and, and putting an invitation there as opposed to, to forcing it on someone. I really love that invitation versus mandate. And also, I might need to play this episode for my 62-year-old father who still rides his bike next to me yelling splits and how slow I'm going during races. Well, but on, tra- on training, he's very supportive. He, they, he always rides with Molly. It's very sweet. But like, and he'll hand you bottles and, and talk to you. Which is well, we, we did 20 miles last weekend. And it was honestly like the hardest 20 miles of my life. Because if you've ever tried to like make conversation with someone for three hours while they're just casually riding next to you and they're quiet in general. It's rough. <laughs> that's, see, that's an amazing example of like how that model can work, but you are choosing to put in those miles. No one's telling you to put it in. <laughs> yes, I am an adult. I could have said no. <laughs> yeah, he was just along for the ride. But I then, love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I also like I love ego, a e- ego hat. I don't know if I can tell parents to take off their ego hat, but I do like that. <laughs> Um, I guess this is more of a, a coach question, but like, our, and this might be more for Melody, but perhaps you can, and for coaches more like, you know, you're running a camp, you're running a, a weekly program. Uh, like, do you know if she's doing like a, a parent's meeting to sort of help them understand these expectations and the goals, the, the, the timeline to the Olympics? Sometimes we talk about like, you got 16 years and there's a lot of, you know, university boys cars that are going to come through here. Uh, before we get to the Olympic training, right? Like, do you, is, is there any advice you have for coaches as far as these conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we've had those, both Melody and I have had those at camps because we worked at other camps as well and Melody's camp with parents um, and also on a, like a one-to-one basis. Like Melody gets lots of calls from parents that are either worried about their, their girl runner or worried about the big the trajectory or the big meet coming up. Um, and then I've coached at the high school and the college level as well. And and um, I think those are important conversations. But in order to have that conversation, the coach has to take the long view. <laughs> and so I think there are different entry points into that conversation. Are the parents really focused on performance? Then let's talk about zooming out. And that timeline to the Olympics isn't going to happen overnight, no matter, you know, unless someone has invented time travel and you probably wouldn't want it to happen overnight because to get from A to Z, all these different things need to happen. But Melody and I both talk a lot about your trajectory not being a straight line up. You can draw a line, you can write a training plan, and it looks perfect on paper, but let's be honest, something is going to happen because life (laughs) or puberty or stress, whatever, that's going to make some dips and blips in that line. But if you zoom out and take that long view, you can see the progress over time and you'll get there. You can chip away at that distance. Um, And so that's an an important perspective to have that the coach needs to have, that the parents need to understand. Um, And then also making sure that that conversation is developmentally appropriate, because if this young girl is about to go through puberty, just explaining, you know, this is a tumultuous time often. There's going to be lots of pressures from society, from school, from friends, um, and also within the sport. Um, So just helping parents understand the landscape can I think, help them be more supportive and and foster a more sustainable development. Mm-hmm. 
How does that, uh, and this might be putting you on the spot, but you know, you're, you're sitting down with a parent or with an athlete, you can choose, um, you know, and they're, they're coming, they've just had their, their period or their child just had their period. Um, you know, and, or, or maybe they're seeing their performance starting to struggle, you know, they're, you know, just body weight's changing and so forth. Bodies are, bodies are changing. Like, how do you have that conversation? Like, can you, can you take us through that at all? And again, I might yeah. be putting you on the spot, but give, no, it, give it a try. This is something that we've been talking with other coaches about a lot because that's the question. It's like, okay, we know periods are important. Okay, we know purity is important, but how do I talk about it? <laughs> how yeah, do I guess I... I guess if I like was sitting here and pretending I was like a much older coach than I am, but you know, I've been doing this long enough and it's like, well, we know that like there's certain qualifications and like how do we give an athlete, you know, five years of puberty and to work through this, like, you know, quote unquote slump, um, you know, and keep them in the program and keep them supported, right? Like there's this, like, I think that's the, the hard piece is that like the athletes know that they're not making the team, right? Like it's a tough one. Well, I think I, I'm going to interject well, and I... say my first thought would be that it doesn't necessarily have to be a slump. I mean, sometimes you're going to have some issues, but right. for a lot of, a lot of girls, puberty is not that big of a. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You take a, take so a shot. I... <laughs> yeah. No, I would agree with that. And so the, the thing that I always say is that every body is different. And so what that timeline looks like or what that plateau, if any, looks like is going to be different from person to person. So I think a huge part of this taboo and this issue and this challenge is just talking about it and explaining that it can be different for everybody and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to slow down. It doesn't necessarily mean that your progress is going to halt. And and just even simply naming that as a coach can be really powerful. And so I've been talking to some coaches like in conferences and saying like break the silence. And so that means early and often. So when you're communicating to parents in pamphlets or emails or whatever, put that on the list of the little things that you're worried about. Sleep, hydration, fueling, periods, asterisks. This is an important indicator of health, you know, and then on to the next one. <laughs> and so starting early, starting often, just bringing it up so that it's not weird, bringing it up because people are going to be awkward and you can be that resource. And even if you're not the expert, you know when something needs to be punted, but you're also just having that conversation so that each individual athlete, if they are struggling, can come to you and it's not about their will to work hard. It's not about their work ethic. It's not about their fitness. It's just about their point where they are in their life developmentally. Um, and so as a coach or a parent, just saying the words puberty and purity can go a really long way, but also coaching to the individual um, is, is really, really important. Yeah. And I think, you know, my approach has been, especially with these younger athletes, like we're not talking about that old. Again, we have years till Olympics. The, the limiter is generally like things like you're talking about, like fueling, you know, just building like tissue quality, right? Especially for runners, you know, we're building the springiness in our ankles and our feet. Um, you know, it, it's not, there isn't the need to bring in this like cutting strategy or this, this power to weight strategy is big in cycling. Um, it's just not the biggest limiter, right? And we can, we can do that. There's certainly like, it's not like we, we can never do that, you know, once you're going for the Olympics, right? There's great people who work with Olympic athletes and, and do cycle things like that. But to me, it's like, 
trying to send your nine-year-old to altitude camp or something, right? Like you just don't need to. Like there's so many ways to get faster. 10% a year. Like it's just like it's as much as you say it's a curvy line, like it shouldn't be in some right. ways. Like it should be like we should get better every year, <laughs> right? And so it's like, as you say, like it's, it's, it's a lot of it is eating enough and sleeping enough and, and not trying to manipulate that stuff. And we'd probably see still see progress even as the body changes, right? Totally. I mean, my philosophy is that if you are coaching adolescent or even prepubescent athletes and they are fueling enough, they are getting enough rest and recovery, including sleep, and they are moving every day in different ways or at least a couple times a week, they will improve. They're developing. Their lungs and hearts are developing. So like pretty much our job as coaches, I feel like, is to not break them. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And to facilitate, right? I think getting them to these explorations and sharing that love um, is more, I was just at a coaching, like coaching some coaches on the weekend. And that was like, I was like, there isn't this magical like drill or anything we have to do. Like a lot of it is just being like making it fun, letting them talk with their friends and like, yeah, like at the right moment, finding the right trail that's going to challenge them enough. But it's just like you say, like they should get better <laughs> simply by doing the thing um, and fueling to do the thing. Right. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's hard. Like, I mean, especially, I mean, the, I think any of the, that like teenage age group when they're active, right? Like it's a lot of food and it's uncomfortable, especially I think for girls, but I think guys as well. Like sometimes, you know, it is, it's like almost embarrassing how much food, right? My favorite part of coaching long-term camps is I have to be the good example who just <laughs> yeah. eats a lot. Yeah, they're always so... like, Molly, you're eating a lot of food. And she's like, yeah. Um yeah, you got to set the standard. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think parents might not know, you know, one experience that comes to mind for me is I went to, I was, you know, working with this younger woman and, uh, you know, her, we were at her parents doing something, um, you know, testing or something and, and just sort of going through stuff, had dinner with them because I sort of knew the family. And it's like we were splitting like a, a single chicken breast, essentially, and like a single sweet potato. And like, I was just sitting there like, this like whole meal for the five of us is like what, like not even enough for what I need. Um, oh. And I'm, I'm like, so this is like, <laughs> right. And yeah. so I'm like, you know, so at least I saw it, right. Like at least, but I think that's a lot of cases, like families that are maybe not into activity, maybe don't even know, like, yeah, no, they're going to need their own chicken breast and like sweet potato here and like probably a bit more. Right. But I think even families that quote unquote know, or families that are involved in sports, they bring their own mindset or they bring their own diet to the family table. And so then like if Bobby is hungry before bed, his mom might not let him have ne- a piece yeah, of cake. Never eat after seven o'clock. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. gosh. It just makes <laughs> <laughs> um, like, because, you know, I think we all underestimate how much you need when you're growing when you're living and then on top of that, you're doing this hard exercise and probably 50 million other things because you're in choir and 4-H or whatever. So I think, you know, that there's a lot of education there uh, that I hope parents and coaches pick up out of our book that like adolescent active humans need to be feeling like it's their job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do a lot of writing for True Sport, which is like USADA's parent and coaching arm. And I write like one nutrition piece a month and pretty much everyone ends with like, also make sure they're eating enough. <laughs> Doesn't matter what the topic is. I'm always just like, also, they need more food. 
Yeah. Um, so actually, I kind of wanted to ask about the book. Was there anything as you were writing through that you just like, what was your absolutely favorite thing that you ended up writing about? I know it's it's asking a lot for someone to come up with it, but I feel like everyone always has like a favorite section. You know, I what I really liked was writing the writing prompt. And so the end of each chapter has these writing prompts. And this is something um, I've done in my own career. Um, we've done at Melody's Camp. I would lead writing sessions. And so I have questions, whether we're talking about training, whether we're talking about gear or food and body issues, nutrition tips. We have these writing prompts at the end that I really wanted to include so that readers would think about their own journey. Because it's easy to say, oh, it's important to have vitamins and minerals. But what does that mean in my daily life? Do I like to eat colorful vegetables? Do I, am I, like, why have I, do I think about the value that my food gives me? You know, and in and, and starting the process for the athletes to find their own experience. And that's like, we have education and information and examples in the book. But again, it comes back to that, that journey and that own per, that that one runner's experience, and so that's where they're going to find value is in what it means to them or what it's meant, what it might mean. So you're saying it's like a journaling exercise of some some type, right? Yeah. Like, what, what are two vegetables I like, or like what would be an example for that sort of like um, I guess food food intake weight appear not weight appearance, but like the food intake piece. Like what would be a, an ex- exercise? Oh, you have the book right there. Oh, so yeah. good. <laughs> I'm pulling it up because okay. I can't remember. Fair You'd enough. think I had the whole thing memorized by well, now. Well, it's so funny. I love a good journaling prompt, and every chapter in the the Shred Girls books, which are fiction, but every chapter starts with like a journal from one of the girls because love. I'm just so obsessed with journal writing. So I love this. <laughs> Great. So for the um, Fueling for Success chapter, which is basically nutrition and sports nutrition, the writing prompt starts out with a quote from Melody. And she says, food was central to my family life growing up. Mealtimes were sacred, especially dinner. Food was always associated with togetherness as a family or with friends. And so the question is, what is eating like in your family? And the next one, the best meal I ever had and five things I tasted, smelled, saw, heard, felt. And the last one is what makes me feel powerful. So... They're less like a quiz, but more like, what role does food play in my life? What role do, does my favorite running shoe play in my life? What, what's my favorite sports bra and why do I like it? You know, things like that where we're helping the athlete just really figure out their own wants and needs and experience. I love that. And my bias or my philosophy is very much skill oriented. So I love that you're talking about all these, like the sports bra thing, the, all these elements to me are like, that's why it takes eight years to become an elite runner is because it's going to take you that long to figure out like, how do you keep your feet from hurting? And how do you like the sports bra thing sounds like funny, but it's like, no, that's like a serious, even in cyclists, like it's a serious thing. Well, did you see that study where it's a lot of young girls drop out of sport because they, they can't find a sports bra that fits them. I think it came out last year or something. Um, yeah, it was so like shocking to me but then as i as i talk to girls and women who who are a little more well endowed than uh, i am i start realizing what an issue it is and it's yeah it's mind-boggling 
that like we it's, haven't figured out how to like talk about this and how coaches just and again completely... as parents parents and coaches right like especially you know there's single dads that i know have reached out through or really enjoyed a couple of molly's books and articles and stuff just because it's like they never even thought about this stuff right let alone periods and pads and tampons and all this other stuff right so it's oh, yeah. there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations there but they're they're fairly critical right like this is why they, someone might drop out it's embarrassing right yeah Mm-hmm. And you know that it like the sports bra wasn't invented till like 1977, and it was invented by three women. So like that, I mean, women had been running for such a long time before that, and yet, and then that's a thing that can make or break someone's experience. Like there was a survey of the runners that ran the London Marathon a year or two ago, and it was the majority, like a big chunk of the women that ran that, and there was a question. And it said, would you rather run without your sports bra or without your shoes? And they all said, or not all of them, but the majority of them said, I would rather run without my shoes, hands down. That's impressive. (laughs) Makes sense. I wonder what, what, was the survey like skewed in that direction? Like, like women's health or something? Like that's somewhat random. Like, what did you have for a sports drink? And then theoretical. Yeah. (laughs) If we're I going can't... to steal one of your articles of clothing, which one would you prefer us to steal? <laughs> I can't remember. I'm sure I can find you the citation. Sure. I love it. Uh, what else? Is there... Well, you mentioned you had on our, our list of topics here something about running streaks. Oh, yeah. Your... So this was actually a blog you had. Sometimes I go through and try and just find blogs that like pique my interest. So I thought this one, and you mentioned this in the article, we'll link to the article on streaks um, from your website. The idea, I guess, was that streaks are good and you really thrive with them. But then you also brought up that like they can be a slippery slope. So I wanted to dive into A, how it helped you and then maybe a bit into the slippery slope. Yeah. So first, it helped me because it got me out the door. And when I started track, my coach, this amazing mentor, he issued these challenges called consecutive day train of consecutive days of training challenges. And so it was like either 60 days or 90 days. And you would sign this pledge. And if you met terms of the consecutive days of training, you'd get like a lunch or a t-shirt, like there's just some incentive. But the idea was that you have to put some work in to see results. And the idea was to get us moving. And so the I think the qualification was like two miles of running, a yoga class. He was really into um, Bikram yoga. And so I got, we had a studio nearby so you could do that. Or like 20 or 30 minutes of cross training on the bike, swimming, whatever. And so he laid out these ground rules And for me, someone who didn't have, I was not fit in any way, shape, or form, that was exactly what I needed. It was just some aerobic work, just getting out, moving my body every day. And I found so much um, strength in that and confidence in that. I could look back and see, like, the last three months, I put in this work. This is great, you know? Um, And so I, I, I was predisposed to be um, as a perfectionist, as someone who has alcoholism in the family, which we know that can predispose um, girls, especially to eating disorders or other compulsive issues. Um, So I was on that end of the spectrum of workaholic perfectionism addict. (laughs) And so I started compulsively exercising. So I was working out 
not just 60 days, not just 90 days, but then for years at a time, I didn't take days off. And so that I would say the, the pros were that it got up and got me out the door. It took like the debate out of it. It got me in, you know, consistently working out, held me accountable. Um, and, and there were, there were perks that way. But then the cons were that I took it to the extreme. I ran through injury. I ran through illness. I ran in an airport, (laughs) (laughs) in you know, like a national travel. And my friend who signed up for track with me, she was traveling with me and we ran through, I think it was the Berlin airport. We ran together. Like to get your two miles. You had to get your two miles. Oh yeah. Had to get them in. I'm not going to let the streak stop me. And so, you know, it definitely taught me that you can fit in exercise anywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But by the time, you know, by the time freshman year, fall in college, when I got a stress fracture in my foot or when I got mono, the best thing for me in those moments probably would have been rest, sleep, recover. And yet I was still hammering. Um, And so I think you just if you're going to try something like that, it's best if you bring that practice mindset or the curiosity and not get over invested in defining yourself in that number, in that days, or as a failure if you take rest. That's that's not the case at all. Rest is a really, really important part of the equation. And now I have enough of confidence and I'm recovered enough from my body issues and, and eating issues that I can relax and, and sit still instead of just frenetically moving um, over and over again. And that's something that Melody always says, like in stillness, you can find lots of power. Yeah, I love that. I, I mean, I like that the initial challenge did have yoga days and, and some of this other stuff built in. So that, that was good. Probably a good aspect versus like I, I've seen some of these like 30 days or like, you know, as you say, 60 day, like just running challenges. And it's like, well, that seems as much as frequency of running is important. Like that does seem like off days are, are important, right? And, and off running days. If, if someone was, you know, as you say, a perfectionist or, you know, not good at being still, like where, where did you find that strength? Where, how did you, I, I'm sure it wasn't a, a switch, but is, is there a first step that you found helpful in, in, in sitting still or, or not overtraining or training all the time? Yeah, I would say um, in college, because I was getting hurt so much, one of my main coaches decided that I should take a complete off day every 14 days. And I, before that, let me back up, when I did have mono and I went home at the end of the school year, my mom took me to see a doctor who I had seen in high school and we loved her. She was a pediatrician, but we loved her because she was a runner and she didn't instantly just think I was crazy. (laughs) And she knew the like, she just understood she got it. And my mom took me to see her and to get her take on my recovery and that she was like, you need to take some time off. Let's take 10 days, do nothing. And of course, that made me super uncomfortable. It made me very anxious, because that was my coping mechanism. It made me feel scared. And yet I trusted and respected her and I knew the way that she explained it, the way that she encouraged it made me realize that this was the best thing for me. And if I, even if I still had that super performance lens, this was going to help me in the long run, not just for my day to day health, um, but also for my running performance. So I took that time off. And then that next year, my coach decided just like at the very least a cross training day per week 
and then a day totally off every two um, weeks. And so that started to kind of, I kind of started to see how that would work in my own equation. And then after college, I coached myself and I played around a little bit with that. And it helped me. I realized how much better I felt. And that's not everybody, but I noticed for me that the response um, and the perks were so much higher than the the stress of, of trying to keep a streak alive. So I, I, I guess how you could say I eased into it. Um, and now I see success with that with my athletes as oftentimes the days that they just want to get out there and, well, I can't miss my long run. The days that they can take care of themselves however they, they need to, whether that's meditation, whether that's sleeping in, whether that's laying around and eating all day, they get to trust their bodies and, and make that choice and have faith that it will pay off in the long run, and it often does. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, hopefully most people can skip the like doctor portion of that, <laughs> but so, sometimes it is. Sometimes like you know we need something where someone says, like, yeah, like it's this or you know it's going to get really bad. Um, but I like that you looked at sort of the like macro cycle, the years, um, you know, a lifespan even, and like, this is going to be the best way to get to that. Right. Like sometimes it's not a straight line, as you said earlier in the podcast. Right. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, uh, let everyone know where they can find the book, where they can find you on the interwebs, read your blogs, stalk you online, et cetera. <laughs> Yeah, so my website is elizabethwcarey.com, and you can find a link to purchase the book there, but it should be in local bookstores, which I fully recommend supporting, especially right now, um, but there's some links to buy online as well. And then on Twitter and Instagram, I'm elizabethwcarey, and I'm also on Strava, and you can give me some kudos for my slow shakeout runs. I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. As you know, materials in cyclocross are very important. What do you think, Mr. Sven Nies? It's uh, very important to have the good material when it's frozen, when it's dry, when it's summer, when it's, uh, when it's wet. Uh, the tires are very important. It's all about technique. It's all about uh, the good material. So we brought the Bike Shop Show back with a cyclocross focus. Same great format, new name, Bike Shop CX. Give it a listen. I think you'll dig it. Each week, Mr. David Palin and I talk about things that go on at our bike shop. We talk about things that go on in the pro cyclocross pit at all the big races around the country. Sometimes we have industry-leading guests on the show. Sometimes it's just the two of us yapping. If you're at all interested in cyclocross, I think you'll like it. The bike shop is open.